Good evening, everybody. <coughs> so, every year, <coughs> try to think of a different angle in uh, approaching the Haggadah, both for, it's good for our, our own schachas, uh, to try to find something new, to find something interesting. Um, the Yisait B'Sharish Avaida in his Haggadah, he writes that we should try to discuss the Midrashim that detail the Neflois, the Nisim, the special miracles uh, that happened during the time of Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim. And if you take any one of them and you just think a little bit the context of them, the depth of them, what, what, you know, what, what they really mean, uh, it's fascinating. And there's a lot to be learned in Amunah Betachan. There's a lot, there's a lot you can take from it. So <coughs> start from, with uh, one of them. This is one that he specifically says, or he said of Shavuot that you should say over by your seder. It's a it's a well known gemar. It's gemar saita. So it's on the pasuk that we say later in the Agada. Now, just as a a piece of advice, um, you don't have to wait until you get up to something in the Hagada to talk about it, because often when you get to that place in the Haggadah, people already have run out of patience. So <laughs> fine. So if you wait, if once you're in the part of the Haggadah that there's a lot of saying. So that's it, you've already pushed play, and it's very hard to push pause at that point. If you can, it's great, but you can't always do that. So if you have something good on later in the Haggadah, there's no, no, no problem saying it earlier by Avadam Hayinu, which is really where you're meant to say it. So you, you say it when people will listen. Anyway, so this is an example of that. So it's on the Pasuk later in the Haggadah, but the, the Kahol Medrash can be easily said anywhere in the Haggadah. So the Pasuk, it's on in the Haggadah, is Barav Kamashanemah, Nisaticha. So it's one, it's one of the Psukim that... Uh, the Baal Haggadah explains by Richus, and uh, he quotes this Pasuk as a Pasuk in Ichaschal, not such an easy Pasuk to understand. The Pasuk says, I made you like uh, tens of thousands, like the grasses of the field, and so on and so forth. At the area, that's the whole Pasuk, which ends up with and we did. Now, the Gemara in Saita darshans this Pasuk and says a fascinating, very fascinating Medrash. Uh, the Gemara says that the, at the point of the Gzair, when they, when they were working so hard, so the men and women were basically separate because uh, the men were working in the fields, the women were put to work other places, and by the time everything was done, they were both uh, so with no kaychas and with no energy and with anything, so there was no, there was no family life, which is also alluded to uh, in, the ha- in the Haggadahs as well when we say precious Darachetz. But Rashi brings us out Rashi says that the women, the Nashim Tzedkanias, they would go out to their husbands in the field and they would uh, bring them uh, f- uh, food and bring them water, and water had some fish in it, and it would, that would give them energy, and this way they would be able to resume family life. And after they, when they would become pregnant, they would go home and they would give birth. But when they would give birth, this was during the time that there was a gezera of kal haben hayelud eretash So if they would give birth to a child, the baby would be thrown into the Nile by the Mitzrim. So what happened was they would go out into the field and give birth under a tree. And then they would abandon their baby. Little baby, they would abandon the baby under the tree and they figured it's better than just allowing the Mitzrim to take it. They would just give the baby a fighting chance. Somehow, maybe the baby will survive under a tree. And Kadosh uh, Baruch would send miraculously a malach from Shemayim that would clean the baby and would beautify the baby. Um, as uh, this also the previous pasuk in Yecheskel says, the pasuk says that Hashem saw to it that we all were cleaned and were taken care of. And then the malach would also provide food. It would provide, um, it would provide uh, oil and it would provide honey. As the pasuk says, 
And then the Mitzrim became aware of this, and the Mitzrim were clued in that the, the Jews were giving birth in the field. So they would search for the babies in the field, and as they would approach, a, a nace would happen, a miracle would happen, and the babies would get um, sucked under the ground, so they were covered from view. But the Mitzrim didn't give up. This apparent miracle wasn't enough to deter the Mitzrim. They would take oxen and plow the field with an, at an attempt to kill the babies that were beneath the ground level. And the babies still survived, and once the Mitzram left, they would, they would um, sprout up like grass, and that's this Pasik Bava Ketzamach They sprouted up like, in, in tens of thousands like, uh, like grass, and once they got a little older, they would come home in uh, droves, Bar Madar Madarim, and that's the end of the Pasik also, which we say in the Haggadah, Vatavai Ba'adi Adayim, Rosh says an interesting thing. He says, why it should say Edre Adarim. Edre Adarim means in droves, in herds. But the Pasik says, Ba'adi Adayim. Adi really means a, a, in jewelry or a, a tachshit. Uh, he says it's because a little child can't say Resh. He has trouble pronouncing Resh. So that's why the Pasik says, Adi Adayim. So says. Anyway, so they come home in droves. Um, and these children, when they were on Yamsuf, they were the first, the, Pasuk, the Gemara says, they were the first to recognize on the Yamsuf when they saw Kaddish Baruch Hu's presence, his Gilush they were the first ones to recognize him. Um, these children who, who survived this whole ordeal. So uh, I read that uh, Rav Vosner, when he would read this part of the Haggadah, and he would say over this, this is the part he became the most emotional part by, you know, the way HaKadosh Baruch Hu did all these miracles to ensure the Kiyom of Klai Yisrael, the Klai Yisrael should endure. Now, if you think about this, this miracle for a minute, now there's, there's a few interesting points to think about. <clears throat> so... This is, uh, you know, an awe-inspiring miracle which was happening during the worst time of the Mitzri Shibud when, when there was this gzera on the children and they were throwing him to the Nile River. They were killing them in a cruel way. And there was this, this tremendous miracle taking place that the children would survive miraculously. They were taken care of. They were provided for. They were hidden from the eyes of the Mitzri. It was a tremendous miracle. <clears throat> now, we know, we know from the Psukim and the Tyra that the, the Mitzri were... Uh, basically like Nazis, when it came to looking for these children, right? Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't be hidden, even though Yechavet uh, uh, gave birth to him a few months early, and she was able to hide him for a few months. Eventually, they seek, uh, sought them out, and they, she couldn't keep him hidden from the Mitzrim. So they, were, they had a whole police system, and uh, a KGB or a Gestapo looking for these babies, and you couldn't hide them. So they were, they, they, it was very difficult to hide the babies. And um, the Chazal say, they learn a Pasuk in Shir Hashirim, that uh, the Mitzrim would take babies, Mitzri babies, and they would take them around from house to house, and the Mitzri babies would cry, and that would cause any babies that were hidden to cry. So that's the way they were able to find the location of any hidden babies. So they did everything in their power to find these babies. So assuming that this decree was going on, and Moshe Rabbeinu was born, the decree was going on, so this, that was about 80 years, right, before... Um, before Yitzhak Mitzrayim, because Moshe Ben was 80 years old at the time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So if this decree was going on, said all the babies were thrown into the Nile River, they were killed, how did they have 600,000 people between the years, ages of 20 and 60 at the time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim? They should have only have been old, old geezers over 80 years old, or little babies about a year old, right? Where, how could there have been 600,000 children between the ages of 20 and 60, right? They were, they were all being thrown into the Nile River. 
So it has to have been that this miracle would have occurred, right? Because there's no other way they could have survived. Now this is working with the assumption that that, that decree of that the children should be thrown into the Nile River never stopped, right? Once it was started, when the Torah tells it was started, it just continued until the point of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. But the truth is that uh, the Ramban writes that that was not the case. The Ramban writes that the decree did stop. The decree did stop. It stopped soon after Moshe Rabbeinu was thrown into the Nile River because that was really the whole point of the decree. They were trying to kill Moshe Rabbeinu. They were not successful. So the decree stopped some point after that. And it's in the Midrashim, there's different sources about how long exactly it went on. Did it go on for three months? Did it go on for three years? It went on for a while. But the interesting thing is, is that if you look in the Haggadah, the Haggadah doesn't sound like that because in the Haggadah we say, V'nitzak al Hashem. Right, when do we mention this? We say, Hashem, they cried out to Hashem. When did they cry out to Hashem? That was right before Yitzhak Mitzrayim happened because they called out to Hashem and then Hashem appeared to Moshe by the snap. Right? So it says, Hashem, 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 So we crawled out to Hashem and he saw Amaleinu. So we called out to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, called out to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and he saw, and he listened, and he saw the children that were thrown into the Nile River. Now, if that decree was stopped around the time when Moshe Rabbeinu was born, that means that decree had already been annulled 80 years earlier, right? Because this Vanitzah Kal Hashem took place a year before Yitzhak Mitzrayim. That's when he, this Hashem appeared to Moshe in the snap. He came, he left, he came. So, so they, call, they call out to Hashem, they cry out to Hashem, and Hashem sees that the children were being thrown into the Nile River, but that, that was an old, according to Ramban, and these Midrashim, that had stopped years and years and years before. So why are we even mentioning that now? Why is Hashem seeing that now? So this question was bothering me a lot. <laughs> it's like a very obvious question. So um, what I found was two fascinating points. Um, this, is not the, this is like a side Point. I'll get to the main thing soon, but this is just I found fascinating. And the Tziv says, the Tziv asks this question, and he says on the contrary. He says, when it happened, when Klal Yisrael was suffering, when the, the babies were being thrown in the Nile, they didn't call out to Hashem. They didn't scream out to Hashem. And if they didn't scream out to Hashem, nothing happened. And it could be if they would have screamed out to Hashem at that point, perhaps that the, the Gezerah would have been annulled quicker. Maybe all the children would have been saved. Some of the children were saved, but not all the children were saved. He says, 80 years later, when they called out to Hashem, it says, Vayar Hashem is Amaleinu, which means Hashem saw it. We weren't even thinking about it anymore. It had been an old 80 years earlier, but when we finally did call out to Hashem, then Hashem took everything into account, which is also a fascinating thought about the power of Anitza. The whole Kaisha went through that whole period of time and they didn't call out to Hashem. And only when they finally called out to Hashem did he take it into account. And uh, I saw in another Sefer, this is actually written by Rabbi Kreiser's father, Rabbi Aaron Kreiser. It was uh, Altamir. He lived a couple of blocks away from me. I remember going to his levaya. I was, uh, wasn't married yet. So uh, he has a sefer. And his sefer, he also writes about this. And he says that it was 80 years later. He says they, they endured those Yusurim, but they didn't daven to Hashem about it. And the Yusurim, he says, have a very tremendous power. They, they have a power of kapara. They have a power to, to bring redemption, but only if you daven to Hashem. Only if you ask that that's what should happen. So it had, took 80 years till Klai Yisrael called out, and when they finally called out, then Hashem took everything into account, and it had a powerful, had, had a tremendous power, but it required a Vanitza. So that's the first, just the, the historical context of how this whole took place, and what the Haggadah is really telling us when it says Vanitza and Amaleinu, and I have to realize a long, long time span between those two things. Okay, now, that being as it is, <clears throat> 
Um, now, just when we realize this, you take a look at this matter. You think of it, you realize it has a, a, a very important, deeper meaning. Klal there was a decree going on, but the decree was a, a temporary decree. It wasn't a very long decree, right? So it either was three months, according to some opinions, or it was three years. But it wasn't a very long decree. Um, the husbands and wives were worn out. They were, they were dead. They didn't have any power. They didn't, there was no family life at all. But the women went and knocked themselves out in order to be able to have children. But what were they having children for? They knew that as soon as they have this baby, it's going to be taken by the Mitzvah and be thrown into the Nile River. They're going to have to give birth to a baby and leave a, a newborn baby in the field all by itself. They didn't know a miracle was going to happen. So they were being Meiser Nefesh, a tremendous level of mysterious Nefesh, to have children just for the sake of having children, just to be Mikhail Hashem Shemaim, to continue the, the chance that Jewish, if they don't have children, then Jewish, the Jews have no, no chance of survival. If they have children, there's a chance of survival. So they're willing to be Meister Nefesh, to have children, to knock themselves out to have children, to convince their husbands to have children, to make it happen that they should have children, just so that child, with all, in, all, in all reality, and with all the simple way things work, that child will die. And if Hirsch writes that it's not a kasha, it's not hard to understand how Klal Yisrael throughout the generations has, seems to have that innate power to be Meister Nefesh al Kiddush Hashem, to give up your life al Kiddush Hashem. Generation after generation, when faced with the choices of serving Kaddish Baruch Hu or the, the choice of death, Klal Yisrael would give up everything to, just for the service of Kaddish Baruch Hu. He says Klal Yisrael was founded on that. Klal Yisrael's, they, they, we were born that way. In, in Mitzrayim, he says these, these women were, were, were giving birth with tremendous mysterious nefesh just for the sake of, of the, con- the continuity of Klai Yisrael, for the chance that they might be able to serve a Kaddish Baruch Hu, even though the children would, would most likely die. So that's another fascinating aspect of this medrash. And um, then the next point that the medrash makes, the final point, is also something very important for us to know, to think about. The, the medrash is saying that these children, right, when they stood on the Yamsov, they were the ones who said, they were the ones who recognized the Kaddish So we're talking about people who were 80 years old, right? So the, these were children who, when 80 years prior, had been abandoned in the field and they were miraculously enslaved by a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and they then, when they came to the Yamsov, they were the ones who said, what does that mean? Everybody witnessed the Yamsov at the same time, right? Everybody saw the the ocean splitting, the Mitzrayim getting drowned. That happened, all, everybody saw that at the same time. And Chazal say, which means you were able to see and perceive the Gilei Hashchid, you were able to see a Kajboko's presence to a greater level than Yecheskel saw a Maisa Merkava. It means Yecheskel saw everything, right? He explained everything to us, the Ifanim, the Kruvim, the, 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 the Chayis, each level, every Cheshma, everything. He explained everything in full clarity. He saw it like a picture. On the Yamsef, you could see more of a Kajboko's presence than that. You could see a clarity of vision of a Kajboko's whole Pamayi Shamayla, the whole heavenly host was there. You could see it all. So everybody saw that. But somehow these children, they said Zekele van Veyu, and not everybody else. What that means is, Mepharshim explained, is that you could see it, but you didn't see it right away. You had to get to that point. You could witness all those miracles, and there could be this open display of, of Gilish Shechina, but you had, to, you had to digest it, and you had to be willing to see what it means, and you had to be willing to act upon what the, seeing that means. It means to say, 
we choose to see what we want to see. Uh, and if seeing something will obligate us in a way we're not so interested in being obligated, right? If seeing something will, understanding something and appreciating something will make us realize, oh my gosh, I have to be so much more, I have to do so much more, I have to be so much greater, often we try to convince ourselves that we're not really seeing what we're seeing. So it was only these children who were the first to say Zechel van Vey, they had no problem uh, understanding, seeing the Gilish Shechina and having the full Amuna which Klai Yisrael then, it took, it took work. It wasn't simple for, for Klai Yisrael to reach that level of Amuna. But these children did. Why? Because they had already begun as children. They had already inculcated this level of Amuna Bitachan as a child. They were abandoned on a field and they were saved by a Kaddish Baruch they had begun the process of, of, of serving Hashem and working on their amuna from, from the youngest age possible. And that, as far as I'm saying, it's a beautiful thought, is why Sipritzism is so important. Why working on our levels of amuna, our amuna in these nisim, is because eventually this going, Mashiach is going to come and there are going to be open miracles. And everybody's going to witness these open miracles. We're all going to witness it together. But the people that are going to say Zekeli van Veyu are the people that are prepared. And the people that didn't prepare, it's not going to come so easily. And it's going to be a struggle. And it's going to take longer. And it's going to have its repercussions. So the preparation that we're doing with Sipur Yitzis Mitzrayim is so that we could be like these, these children. That when the Nisim do happen and we're exposed to them and we see that Gilu Shechina, we can be from the first ones to say, and accept what we're seeing and, and grow from what we're seeing and, and, and experience the full value of, uh, of, of Yitzis Mitzrayim. And um, in, uh, in Sefer Yismach Yisroch, Sefer Sefer, he says that that's what it means. Kol hamarbe l'saper b'yitzis mitzrayim harei zeh meshubach. He says, if you're marbe l'saper b'yitzis mitzrayim, then your zeh is going to be meshubach. In other words, when you say zeh kelevan veyu, it's going to be meshubach. It'll be a whole different thing. If you're marvelous at Yitzchus Mitzrayim, the more effort you put into Yitzchus Mitzrayim, the more kaiches you put into understanding the Nisim, is going to be a very different Zekele Van Vey. And it's, it's an extraordinarily po- important point. It's an important point for us, you know, at every day of our life, and an important point to realize what, what it is that we're, we're trying to accomplish. And this is just some of the thoughts that, you know, I saw looking about at the, what what the relevance and the importance and the depth of this medrash is. So it's, it's, it's just a very important medrash to share, um, even if you know it, obviously, right? Everybody can know it, you say it again anyway. The whole medrash from the beginning, with the, they went out into the fields and they enticed their husbands and they came, they came home and then they gave birth under a tree. And the whole thing is, 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 is really mind-boggling. So that's one thing. <clears throat> um, here's another, another nekudah. Again, one of the later psukim in the Haggadah, but once again, no, no need to wait till you get, say, this Pasuk to talk about this, uh, this interesting point. We say, also in the Haggadah, this is one of the actually lesser understood psukim. We say, right? has an outstretched hand, that's his sword. Like it says, he has an outstretched sword uh, held over Yerushalayim, right? So, What's the sword? Why are we talking about Yerushalayim? Right? What's going on over here? We're just talking about Hashem uh, hit the midrim, right? Gave Makis. What, what is going on? So Abudraham says that this is referring to Makas Bukharis. It's referring to Makas Bukharis. And the sword 
is not Hashem's sword, but it's referring to the Bechairis themselves, because they knew, they heard Moshe Benu saying that all the firstborn sons are going to die. They were not interested in waiting around to see that happen. So they waged war against their fathers and against all those who were stopping the Jews from leaving. They wanted to survive. And that was a civil war taking place in Mitzrayim at the point of Makkah's Bechairis. And that's what Mepharshim say, that Budraham says, the Makkah, Mitzrayim, Biv Chayrehem. Right. Mitzrayim had one particular Makkah, Bechayim, within the Bechayim themselves. But there was a war between the Bechayim and the fathers, and many died even from that itself. So he says that's Har Bishluf of Biyadei was this, this Cherev of the, the Bechayim with their fathers. But Rav um, Matziol Salomon, he should be well in his Haggadah, he quotes a Mechilta. And this is, this, is, uh, this is where it really gets we get an appreciation for what really was going on during Makkah's Bechairis, as far as the Jews and the relationship the Jews and the Mitzrim. It, it, it's, we don't understand what was going on. He says, the Mechilta says that Klal Yisrael was in the hands of the Mitzrim like a small bird grasped in the hand of a person. When a person is holding a small bird in his hand, if he squeezes, the bird will choke to death. It takes that much effort to kill the bird. Nothing. Squeeze, the bird is dead. That's the, that's the kind of grasp the Mitzram had over Klal even at the point of Makkah's Bechairis. And he explains like this. He says, like, just as by the end of World War II, as the Germans saw they were losing, they started exterminating. Right? They didn't want the Jews to walk away. They tried their best to do, to do full extermination and just wipe out any survivor. Baruch Hashem, they were not successful. They were stopped before that happened. He said Pari was, was looking to do the same thing. At the point when he saw he's not going to be successful, at the point when he saw that, that Klal Yisrael was going to leave Mitzrayim, all he had to do was squeeze. That was how easy it was, would have been for him to exterminate the Jews, to just say the word and all the Mitzrayim would have exterminated his, any Jew that's within reach. It would have been as simple as squeeze, the bird is in the hand, squeezing the bird to death. That was the precarious situation that the Jews were in. And the only thing that stopped them was Roy and Atuya, the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu scared them to the point of inability to act. That's what we're saying over here. This right the, the, the sight of a Kaddish Baruch Hu's sword froze them, made them immobile. And he says even more that they were they, the, the way the Makkah proceeded, bang after bang after bang after bang, is that they, they, they didn't just simply didn't have the capability of, of uh, intelligent thought. They could, he couldn't plan. He couldn't make. A, he couldn't do anything because of just all the confusion and the the, the, the bedlam that was going on. So that's one step of realization of just how much of a Hatzala there was for us at the moment of Makas Bechairis. There was a necessity for Ezra'i and Atuya. Now, it's not just a term, it's a concept. There was Ezra'i and Atuya, not just that Akadosh Baruch Hu had an outstretched hand, and just a way of describing a way of he hit the mitzvah. That's not what it was. It was the way we picture an outstretched hand. There was a threatening, and that threatening was really crucial for us to survive, because otherwise they would have exterminated us. So that's what he says, which is brilliant. Now, it gets better. There is Chassam Seifer. Chassam Seifer is one of his children. Is called, it was Shimon Seifer. He wrote a Seifer called Michtav Seifer. So he writes that his father, the Chassam Seifer, used to say this a lot. Um, and he would say this to his children. He would say that Claudius was commanded, Ish al mi Pesach Besai. Nobody should leave their house the whole night. Right? He says that was the most difficult Messiah for Kla Yisrael during the duration of the time of Mitzrayim. If you think about it, it says, the Pasuk says that 
<coughs> there was a screaming and a yelling and 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 a bedlam going on in Yitzhak Mitzrayim. The amount of noise and screaming and, and confusion was never equaled in history, not before and not after. There was nothing ever like that, right? So imagine, you know, when 9-11 happens, right, and you're sitting in your house and you hear a crash um, and, and, and then you hear a couple of minutes later uh, something collapsing, and then another building collapsing, and there's smoke, and there's yelling, and there's screaming, and then there's ambulance, and another ambulance, and another ambulance, and another ambulance, and, and a fire truck, and people running in the streets, and yelling, and screaming, and this is something that's never been heard before in history, and you have to sit in your house, and you can't get up, and there's no windows, and you can't look out, and you can't step out, and there's no TV, so there's no way for you to know what's going on, and in context, we know that they were this closed, that is a precarious situation. The, the Egyptians could easily have wiped them out and exterminated them and were ready to do that. And, but they were commanded by Hashem, Ish al stay put, do not do anything, don't look, don't try to find out what's going on, just have betachen, accept, and accept that I'm in charge and I'm going to take care of the situation. He says that was the most difficult Messiah that Kal Yisrael had. Just try to picture yourself in that situation. And you can't do it. You can't even check. You can't go outside. You can't step outside to look. And the deeper truth of it is, is that the only thing protecting them was that they were inside their house. Right? If they, they needed the schos of being inside their house, that they had the dam al Pesach Besim, that was their protection. And even on a deeper level, um, Rashi says that uh, Rashi says that Baruch Hu, well, the Pasuk says uh, that, that Hashem will see the, the, the dam on your, uh, on your doorpost. So Rashi says, HaKadosh Baruch will see it. HaKadosh Baruch sees everything. So Rashi says, it means that he'll see that you're asukim b'mitzvah He'll see that you're busy doing his mitzvahs, and that'll be your schus, why you, you'll be saved during Makkah's Bechayrus. And uh, the question is, why does the blood have to be on the doorpost for Hashem to see? The mitzvahs we did, we brought the carbon Pesach, on the doorpost, not on the doorpost, is the same mitzvah. But according to this Chazam Seifer, it has a whole another context. They were doing a constant mitzvah the whole night. They were do, do, trim, displaying tremendous mesir snefesh and tremendous betachen. They were being oisik b'mitzvah the whole night by staying in the house, leaving the blood on the doorpost of the house, and trusting in the protection of the blood of, on, on their door, doorpost. That's what HaKadosh Baruch Hu saw all night. He saw how Kali Yisrael truly put their trust in him and their faith in him. And the Chassam Sefer says that was the schos that saved Kali Yisrael in Mitzrayim. This is, that was that schos, that betachen is what saved Kali Yisrael. And he says the reason why he some Sefer said this, that the reason why he tells this to his children is because he says that when Mashiach comes, the same thing is going to happen. There's going to be Hevle Mashiach, and there's going to be a tremendous amount of suffering, there's going to be a tremendous amount of confusion, and there's going to be a tremendous need to just rely and be beteach on HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And we're going to have the strength to do it because we did it in Mitzrayim, and that's something that we have to also, he says, teach and learn and remember that we're going to need that kind of bitach and that kind of blind faith. We're just we're going to sit at home. We're not going to turn on our TVs. We're not going to turn on our, our internet. We're not going to look at our phones. And we're just going to trust that we're safe where we are. If that's what our Baruch Hu told us to do, and that's what's going to get us through Chavlim Mashiach as well. Which is a fascinating, a fascinating concept. Um, <clears throat> another another point. Uh, also, is this is um, a little bit more original, but it's the, the point is true regardless. We say in the Haggadah, we say, uh, Arami, Oyved Avi, Bayerid Mitzrayimah. 
This is the very first passage that we begin with, and when we start the string of Psukim. We say, Arami Abinavi, Mad, Look what Love and Rami tried to do, that Parai only tried to kill all the Scharim, whereas Lavan Bikish Lakas a called Lavan tried to kill every body, Shanama Rami Abidavi Arami tried to destroy Yaakov Avinu, Mitzrayim, and he went down to Mitzrayim. Now, there's many questions asked about this. The obvious one is, why are we making Lavan out to be the big Russia and Parai to be the Tzaddik? You know, it's not kind of, that's counterproductive, that's not the point here. The point of that God is to say, Parai is the Russia, why would we do that? And also, the language of Shver Oyved is a kind of a present tense. He's uh, making him get lost. It should have said Avar or Bikishlav. The language is strange. Also, they say, that it should say then, at least if we're talking about love and how love and wanted to destroy Yaakov Avinu, so then say something about how Hashem saved Yaakov Avinu, but we don't even talk about that. That's the, it seems to be the main point. We're saying how Hashem saved Isha Amda, Hashem always saved us, so, so say something about it. But we don't even talk about that. There's a number, the number of questions that they ask. So I think, and this, some Rishonim actually learned in the Pasik this way, that Arami Ayvid Avi doesn't refer to that love and wanted to kill Yaakov Avinu, but Arami Ayvid Avi refers that, that love, that Yaakov Avinu was made destitute, or attempted to be made destitute by love, and he tried to make him impoverished. Ayyavid actually fits much better that way. Ayyavid is not typically a language used for killing or destroying, or it's a harigo, or different words in terror. Ayyavid is a much more a, a language used in financial ruin. Uh, and the Rishayim that say this, the Cheskuni, and there's a Targumenus, and also they, they, used, they, they translate the word Ayyavid to mean destitute. And that's actually what we know that the Torah says that Lavan tried to do, right? The Torah doesn't say clearly that Lavan tried to kill Yaakov Avinu, but it says very clearly that he tried to destroy him in business, right? He switched the deal on him a hundred times, and according to Chazal, it was a thousand times. He constantly tried to undermine him. He kind of, even after the whole thing, all, everything that he tried that was unsuccessful, he goes to Yaakov Avinu and says, everything you have is mine. He never agrees that he lost the election, right? He never agrees that he never agrees that it's his. It's all uh, it's all it's all mine, and it was never yours, and you're still wrong, right? So th- there's no point in time where Lavan gives up on trying to destroy Yaakov Avinu financially. So Ar- Arami Oyved Avi makes sense, right? It was a constant thing. And actually, Bafarshim say that that was why it was a tikkun for Yaakov Avinu. That's what Hagar is trying to say. He was better off in Mitzrayim. He could have had his gallus by Lavan. It was also gallus, right? He could have had his 210 years by Lavan, but Lavan was around the Oyved Avi. He was so intent on destroying Yaakov Avinu that it would have, he would have been successful. It was a tikkun for Yaakov Avinu to go to Mitzrayim. And what's important about this is because this is something that repeats itself in history again and again and again and again. And it's something important to understand and just recognize the Nefloya Sabere, how Kajabor saves us miraculously in this way which is Jews, time and time and again, were prevented from having just about doing any business. They were not allowed different throughout, throughout the ages, up till the beginning of the 1900s, in all, any country, including America. They were prevented from many jobs. They were banned from owning land. They were banned from all different kinds of professions. In each place they were, they found a profession that they could do. And they ultimately became extraordinarily prosperous in that profession. And then that got, obviously, the non-Jews very upset and jealous and threatened, where they tried to take that away from them, so they had to leave. And Jews moved from Gaulus to Gaulus, largely 
less because of persecution, more because of financial issues. They, mo they moved because their, financials, their, their financial opportunities were taken away. To give you some examples, the most famous one is uh, moneylenders, right? Jews were moneylenders, Shylock, right? So that was already in the beginning of the Middle Ages, starting from the 1100s and on. Um, in England, they were brought in, they were prevented from doing anything. They were banned from owning land, from doing any, well, most jobs, the guilds, they couldn't pr make things. So the only thing they could do was lend money. So they lent money. Christians weren't allowed to lend money with rivers to each other, but Jews could. So Jews did, and they became very, very good at it. And they became bankers, and they became very wealthy. And the king was very, very happy with their presence because they brought in a lot of revenue for the crown. And the only reason why they survived in England through the Middle Ages, they are eventually expelled for a very long time. England, actually, I don't know if people know this, they had the longest expulsion of anywhere else, longer than Spain. The expulsion of Jews from England was the longest period of time. But it, for about 200 years, they were kept, they were, there was plenty, plenty of persecutions, plenty of programs, but they were allowed to stay because they were very successful as moneylenders. But eventually, they, they just got tired of the, owing so much money to the Jews. And uh, they constantly you know, were, were, were just denying the debt and so on and so forth. So eventually, they lost that, that form of uh, Parnassa. In, um, in uh, Poland and most of uh, Eastern Europe, and this is, I'm going to be talking about Be'ez HaShem uh, over Yantav about Mechiris Chametz. A large reason why Mechiris Chametz developed into what it is today was because Jews did not have any other source of business other than selling alcohol. Uh, originally it was beer, and eventually it became um, other, you know, whiskey and other alcohol, because that was the only thing they could do. They were barred from every other business. They were barred from, um, they were barred from, again, from owning land. They were bound for, barred from farming. They were barred, barred from trade. So the only thing they could do was buy and sell alcohol, which was a very profitable business. At some point, they owned the majority of all alcohol business in Eastern Europe was owned by Jews, from Jews. Um, they ran a kretschme, right? That's, uh, they had uh, their inns, they had their bars. That's why it made such issues with comets, because they had these used stocks of uh, beer and of alcohol, and they had to figure out what to do. Their inn also had to run on Pesach. A lot of complications, which is why Mechir's comets ended up being what it was. Here, too, they did this for a while. They were very prosperous. Jews became rich as a result of the one profession that was left for them. And again, the Jews then, they started to make decree after decree to uh, stop them. Um, there was, in 1793, Poland was the first, the first place that banned in Galicia. It was 1784. Then 1804 and 1812 and 1814, every opportunity they had, they kept on making bans on Jews to, to make alcohol. Then I guess they didn't make, no one had alcohol anymore. See, part of the reason why they wanted the Jews to run these taverns, all the lords wanted the Jews to run these taverns because the Jews didn't get shikr, they didn't get drunk. So they ran, ran it successfully. When the Goyim ran it, they got drunk too. It's a whole thing. You know, everybody's drunk, is not going to run. That's what I said. So that they, 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 they actually needed the Jews to run these establishments. And uh, eventually, you know, again and again, they kept on banning Jews from it, and the whole the, 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 that caused the collapse of the industry. And that's when Jews largely started migrating to America because there was no there was no panacea for them anymore in uh, in in Poland. Um, and this was also an interesting one because uh, I know my my grandfather in Romania was busy with this as well. It was a shmata industry. This is also a Jewish industry because again, they were barred from it. This was in Finland in the 1900s. They barred Jews from doing, beginning of the 1900s, Jews were barred from doing anything, they, but they were allowed to buy and sell shmatas, and they became rich and prosperous buying and selling shmatas. It's, it's, it's not a derech 
there's no teva to it. It doesn't make sense. They were, they were pushed into a corner again and again. We were constantly pushed into a corner. And again, a Kaddish Baruch who provided for us and allowed us to become prosperous. And again, the Jews, the, the Gaim, Arami, Ovid, Avi, they never allowed us to be successful financially. And yet, nonetheless, uh, even in the States, uh, Jewish lawyers, you think that's like a ubiquitous term, right? Jews are all lawyers. They, you could not join a firm in the begin, in the, even in the 60s, a Jewish lawyer couldn't get a job in a firm. The Jews ended up having to form their own firms, which are many of the large firms now. But that was the nature of, the, that was the nature of, of, of business. So any, all areas of Jewish profession and prosperity are a clear Yad Hashem, that we were Matzliach, even though constantly the tables were, the cowards were stark, sta- uh, stacked against us. So it's also something to talk about and to think about. Um, during this part of the Agad Avi. One last point we'll talk about <clears throat> is uh, the Makis, because you, you have to always talk about the Makis, and there's not much, always a lot to add about the Makis. Um, but here, this, uh, this year, I gave this so share to the woman. Uh, there's a parak in Tilim, there's actually two prakam in Tilim, but one of the prakam in Tilim, Parak Ein Zayin, long parak, talks all about Yitzhiyas Misraim. Um, and in the middle, he talks about the Makis. Uh, he does a, uh, does a few interesting things. First of all, he mixes up the order, and he also says some interesting things. It says, mm-hmm. He turned the, the Nile to blood, and their water, and they couldn't drink it. And they skipped to Makis Arev, and they ate, they ate them. And then he goes back to Tzvardeah, and that destroyed them. Then he goes to Arba, to Arba, then to Barat. So it mentions some of the Makis, not all of them. It says them out of order. And then Farshim try to understand what's the Pshat. So I just want to share with you something that the Alshech says, which is just fascinating. Um, just a fact about the Makkah, which is not well known. He quotes a Zayar. He says like this. It says, the Tzvardeya v'atashchisen. Right? That's what we... That's what the Pasik says in Tehillim, that Tzvardeya destroyed them. He says, how did Tzvardeya destroy them? So the, the, the Zayar says that they, when they drank water, the frogs were in the water in microscopic form, tadpoles. Tadpoles are very, very, very small. So they drank them, and then they grew into frogs in their stomach, and they burst out and killed them. Sounds like a horror movie, right? So that was, that's, what, that's what it means, Tzvardeya v'atashchisen. And he says a fascinating thing. He says what the Pasuk is doing is it's bringing a, a very important point to our attention, which is that the Makis really were duplicates of each other. Tzvardeh really could have been part of Arev, right? Arev was that wild animals came and destroyed people, and so was Tzvardeh, especially according to this Zayar. So what was the difference between Tzvardeh and Arev? And he says the same thing. The, the Arba came and destroyed all their crops, and then the bard came and destroyed all the crops. So, or the bard came, I'm sorry, and then the arba. So what was the difference? They were both doing the same thing. Both of those makas were accomplishing the same thing. He says on the contrary. He says that was the lesson over here, was that really the Friday could have destroyed all the midterm already at that point. They all drank, they all got infested and infected by these frogs, and they could have all died. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu, at the same time that he was punishing them, he was also withholding the maka. He was punishing and withholding and allowing place for Arev to, be, to take place. And as a result of HaKadosh Baruch controlling Tzvardeya, when Arev came around, there were still people alive. 
who were suffered from Arev. Haksem, this Rashi says in the Alatira, is that when the Barad came, the Barad really should have wiped out their crops. But there was Piliploi, as Rashi says, it was one of the Nisim that the Barad didn't destroy all the crops. And then when the Arba came, there was room for the Arba to destroy the crops. So in every nace, there was both a miracle in the fact that it destroyed, and there was also a miracle in what it didn't destroy. Both were miraculous. Who, and this is something the Raskarab would say often, is that every bullet has an address. But if HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends a Makkah, exactly where it's meant to go is where it goes, and where it's not meant to go, it won't go, both miraculously. It'll go where it's meant to go miraculously, and it won't go where it's not meant to go miraculously. And the lesson of that is obviously about you know, the Makkah, but also for us, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu ever sends difficulty, and he sends Yisurim, Yisurim Nishbayim Ba'imdim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends them, and even when he's punishing, and even when a person does need to suffer, it's sent precise. Exactly how much a person needs is how much he will get, and whatever he's not supposed to get, he won't get, and it won't happen. It's, everything is with an extraordinary, an extraordinary measure of control. The Tzvardeya destroyed exactly how many people were meant to destroy. They, they, they infected as many people were meant to be infected, and the other people were miraculously not infected, although they were exposed to the same problem as everybody else. And that's just a lesson for how HaKadosh Baruch Hu runs the world in general with such diktuk and, and such uh, precision. So anyway, these are some thoughts, some ideas I was thinking of this year, the different Nisan, the different Neflois, the Aran, the Haggadah, there's so much more. And uh, everybody should be zeichel to have a chakash with some and a good yantif.